Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Happy Canada Day to my Canadian listeners and to everyone else out there, too. Our subject today has been referred to as the world's most famous surgeon, but I would guess that many of you don't know the name, Norman Bethune. We'll see why he may still deserve this title as we follow his strange life story that will end in his early death in a remote Chinese village in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Dr. Norman Bethune's life, more so than many of the people we've covered so far, has very distinct and separate phases that almost seem as though he led a number of separate lives. We will follow him from rural Ontario, Canada, to Toronto, Detroit, Montreal, Spain, and China with a long respite in a tuberculosis sanatorium. His fame grew with each phase, but his politics and his temperament tarnished his reputation so much so that his name really only took on the status it now holds decades after his death, at least in the West. As always, let's start at the beginning. Henry Norman Bethune was born March 4th, 1890 in Gravenhurst, Ontario, a Canadian province. This is in the Muskoka region, just north of Toronto. Imagine a pristine landscape full of lakes carved out of the rock of the Canadian Shield, with pine trees clinging to the cliffs and forests full of wildlife. This area has become a popular cottage country and is still beautiful. Bethune grew up there in his early years, but bounced around Ontario as his father was a small town pastor. He would take on his middle name, Norman, in honor of his grandfather, Norman Bethune, who was a surgeon and dean of Toronto's Trinity Medical College School. Our Norman started university in Toronto in 1909, taking a year off in 1911 to volunteer as a laborer and teacher in remote lumber and mining camps in northern Ontario. He returned to Toronto and entered medical school in 1912. When World War I broke out, Bethune suspended his medical studies and joined the Canadian Army's No. 2 Field Ambulance. He was sent to France as a stretcher bearer and was wounded in the left leg by a shrapnel shell during the Second Battle of Ypres and spent three months at an English hospital recovering. Following this, he returned to Toronto and completed his medical degree in 1916. Interesting fact, one of his classmates was Frederick Banting, co-discoverer of insulin. But the war was not done with him yet, or perhaps he wasn't done with it, as Bethune joined the Royal Navy as a surgeon lieutenant at the Chatham Hospital in England and later moved to the Canadian Air Force. In describing his military experiences, he said that he'd seen very little of war's glory and mostly of war's waste. But these experiences likely taught him the value of immediate medical intervention on the battlefield, which will play a large role in his life. Now this led to the next phase of his life as a European Bohemian. While taking on additional training in London and Edinburgh, Bethune lived a life of art and culture, and actually made extra money by becoming an art dealer in his spare time. This European phase also included meeting his wife, Frances Penny, the daughter of a wealthy Scottish court accountant, who he would marry and divorce twice. They married for the first time in 1923 and spent a year touring Europe, visiting art museums and prominent surgeons and spending all of her inheritance. When the money ran out, the next phase began. They moved to Detroit, where Bethune set himself up in private practice and worked as an instructor part-time at the Detroit College of Medicine and Surgery. Interesting thing about the name Detroit that I found it only recently. The area was settled by French colonists, and the name comes from the French Le Détroit du Lac Erie, translated as the Strait of Lake Erie. That's weird, right? It should be Detroit, not Detroit. Anyways, Bethune set up in a rather poor part of town, and most of his clientele were destitute and unable to pay him in cash, but rather would barter goods or not pay him at all. He struggled to make ends meet, and the commercial aspect of medicine was really laid bare to him. This strongly influences worldviews about medicine, private enterprise, capitalism, and socialism. But that will take on a more prominent role later. Just as he was starting to make a name for himself as a general surgeon in Detroit, in 1926 he was struck by one of the scourges of civilization, tuberculosis. 
Okay, a couple quick things on tuberculosis, or TB as it's known, even though an entire podcast could be dedicated to it. TB is a bacterial infection around since ancient times, typically infecting the lungs, but can affect many other parts of the body. It's spread through the air by infected people, typically from coughing and sneezing. And the name of the disease comes from the Latin word tuberculum, meaning small swelling or lump, which describe the round white masses found in patients' lungs at autopsy. This is the same root word, pun intended, that we use for the word tuber, the group of vegetables that includes potatoes, yams, and sweet potatoes, among others. Now, a common term for TB was consumption, which goes back as far as the ancient Greeks because chronic infections seemed to consume the patient with dramatic weight loss. This is what happened to Bethune as he wasted away in the Trudeau Sanatorium in Saranac Lake, New York. He had divorced Francis for the first time around the time of admission. Now, I've read differing accounts as to whether he or she initiated it, but it certainly seemed like his attitude was that his life was over and that he would die in the sanatorium. In fact, Bethune would later refer to this as his first death. Famously, Bethune would paint a mural in the cabin that he shared with other patients depicting the different phases of his life, ending with his own death, called the TB's Progress. Pretty dark stuff. But his cabinmates would prove to be a salvation, as he's included three other doctors. And a couple of published articles have speculated that one of them was the famous surgeon Dr. Alfred Blaylock, of Blue Baby fame and definitely a future podcast subject. It was with these cabinmates and colleagues that Bethune started to look for a better answer than to simply waste away. They discovered a textbook in the sanatorium library written by Dr. John Alexander, a thoracic surgeon who had also suffered from TB and had been a patient at Trudeau Sanatorium. The book described Collapse Therapy of Pulmonary Tuberculosis, which is the creation of an artificial pneumothorax as a surgical treatment for TB. So what is that? Well, in the 18th century, French doctors realized that TB patients that had spontaneous pneumothoraces, or collapsed lungs, got better. So eventually it was realized that by making an incision, or by inserting a needle into the space between the lung and the chest wall and introducing air, you could cause the lung to collapse which would cause the tuberculous cavities, like holes in the lung from infections, to disappear and would give the lung a chance to heal. Now this was eventually replaced by antibiotic therapy in the 1940s, but at the time Bethune insisted on this treatment, and with some reluctance, his physician at the sanatorium agreed. He quickly improved, and by 1927 left the institution ready to return to the world with a new crusade, the eradication of tuberculosis. So he sought out and got a training position in thoracic, meaning chest, surgery, with Dr. Edward William Archibald at the Royal Victoria Hospital in Montreal, Quebec, also in Canada. He became his first assistant in 1928, so basically he became a resident at the age of 38. And this wasn't his last career change, or even his second last career change. I told you it's like he led multiple lives. Now Bethune stayed at the Royal Vic from 1928 to 1932. Now over this time he remarried Francis in 1929, and divorced her again in 1931. His professional life in Montreal was volatile, too. Working with Archibald, he published numerous papers and invented a number of surgical instruments, including the Bethune rib shears, still in use today, a novel rib stripper, and an improvement on a pneumothorax device, and was known for his speed and technical ability. But he was often criticized for being cavalier in his approach to operations, taking on high-risk patients, operating too quickly, and had increasing numbers of deaths postoperatively. Bethune was also in constant conflict with his colleagues, openly criticizing them, including his superior, Dr. Archibald. Socially, too, he was taking on a reputation known for picking arguments and insulting people, being a bit of a heavy drinker, and prone to erratic behavior. By 1932, he was dismissed from his position at the Royal Victoria Hospital, but took on the post as Chief of Pulmonary Surgery, lung surgery, at the Hôpital du Sacré-Cœur 
in Cartierville, an area just north of Montreal. And a little history on that name. So Sacré-Cœur is French for Sacred Heart, which is a reference to the Feast of the Sacred Heart, a religious date in the Roman Catholic Church dating back to the 11th century. And it takes Jesus Christ's physical heart as the representation of his divine love for humanity. And the most well-known site would probably be the Sacré-Cœur Basilica in Paris, but I digress. So Bethune thrived personally and professionally in this new role, as he did seem to chafe under someone else's leadership. He continued to operate, publish, and train new surgeons. And at the Sacré-Cœur, he was likely the first surgeon in the world to carry out bilateral thoracoplasties, which is a surgical procedure involving removal of the ribs to collapse a lung, and was the first surgeon in Canada to do a pneumonectomy, surgical removal of a lung, in a child under 10 years of age. Privately, his circle of friends included many artistic and intellectual luminaries of Montreal, and his social conscience was awakening. Bethune began to see his battle against tuberculosis to be not in the operating theater, but in the larger context of socioeconomics, equating the disease with poverty and poor living conditions. Bethune opened a free clinic to treat women, children, and unemployed men, and he began to be interested in communism and visited Moscow and Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, in Russia in 1935 while attending a medical conference. This trip deeply influenced his views, so much so that when he returned home, he joined the Communist Party of Canada. Of interest, too, is that Bethune took on the gargantuan task of creating a study group called the Montreal Group for the Security of the People's Health, which looked at the healthcare systems of other countries and proposed a plan of reform that was a version of socialized medicine. Remember that Canada did not implement universal healthcare nationwide until 1966, so Bethune was well ahead of his time. However, the report was met with indifference, which is very disappointing to him. The next big move by Bethune seems like one of the riskier moves of his life, but will turn out to be only the second riskiest. In 1936, at age 46, he was the chief of his surgical department, was gaining an international reputation, was well established in his social circle, was in love with a woman named Marianne Scott, who was actually married to someone else, and was financially well off. He decided to give it all up to go to Spain to help out in the Spanish Civil War. A quick background. The Spanish Civil War, which started in 1936 after the election of a popular front coalition that included socialists, anarchists, and communists, was a military revolt, eventually led by the general Francisco Franco, and could be seen as a prelude to World War II, as well as a struggle of the political ideas of the mid-20th century. The rebels were called the Nationalists, and received aid from Mussolini's Italy and Hitler's Germany, and often considered fascist. The government, or Republicans, were aided by Stalin's Soviet Union, and contained elements of democratic forces as well as communism and other left-leaning political groups. As an FYI, the Western powers sat this one out, and the fascist Nationalists, led by Franco, would win in 1939, and Franco continued to rule Spain until his death in 1975. Bethune arrived in Madrid on November 3, 1936, with the support of the Canadian Committee to Aid Spanish Democracy. The Republican side commissioned him to the rank of major. After surveying the situation, he decided that the best way to help the war effort was to establish a blood transfusion service. Now this in itself was not unique, but what was unique was the way he set it up. Instead of waiting for the wounded to arrive at a central location, Bethune would often lead his team close to the front lines to get the blood to the injured soldiers as quickly as possible, using refrigerated trucks, saving untold lives. This basic but game-changing innovation was the first of its kind in the world, and was used as a model by the Allied forces in World War II. The name of the service he created was the Servicio Canadiense de Transfusion de Sangre. Sorry for my Spanish. Here is a description in Bethune's own words. Quote, we have succeeded in unifying all remaining transfusion units under us. 
We are serving 100 hospitals and casualty clearing stations in the front lines of Madrid and 100 kilometers from the front of the sector to central. This is the first unified blood transfusion service in army and medical history. Plans are well underway to supply the entire Spanish anti-fascist army with preserved blood. The institute is now operating on a 1,000-kilometer front, end quote. Now, however, in what must seem like a pattern by now, Bethune began to clash with the authorities. He drank in excess, was flirtatious with women, and was harsh in his criticism, which led to him being gradually pushed out of control of his blood service. By May of 1937, things had gotten so bad with the Spanish authorities that he had to return to Canada. However, his creation of a mobile blood unit made medical and military history. Upon his return to Canada, Bethune went on a lecture tour to raise money for the cause. But for Bethune, the desire for action still burned. His next and final phase was to lend his support to China in its battle against the invading Japanese. This would lead to his greatest fame and would make him a legend in China. Again, quick background note, and I don't pretend to be an expert in Asian history. But this time period, 1937 to 1945, is known as the Second Sino-Japanese War, fought between the invading Japanese and the United Forces of the Communist Party of China, led by Chairman Mao, and the Chinese Nationalist Party, led by Chiang Kai-shek. Amazingly, these two groups had fought a civil war in the time leading up to the Japanese invasion, and resumed it in 1946. Once Bethune arrived in China, he made his way to Yan'an province in the north, with the intention of helping Mao Zedong's 8th Route Army, which was the front against the Japanese. Once there, he set to work at a feverish pace, operating on the wounded, inventing new instruments, including a mobile operating table that could also hold drugs and supplies, training his assistants and establishing procedures as well as writing textbooks on elementary medicine and surgery. One of these was called, quote, a manual of organization and technique for divisional field hospitals in guerrilla war, end quote. In this rural area, Bethune was the only qualified physician for 13 million people. Bethune became known to the people as Pei Chuen, meaning White Seek Grace. He established mobile medical units that would travel to the front lines to save wounded soldiers and set up groups of volunteer blood donors. His range of surgery was general, and in one report he described three skull fractures that were trifend, meaning drilling a hole in the skull, two amputations at the level of the thigh, two perforations of small intestines, half a dozen bad fractures in arms and legs, and a number of smaller operations. His legend among the soldiers grew to the point where the rumor of his presence in combat areas was often credited with victories in battles. One article I read gave the opinion that the very qualities that led his thoracic surgery colleagues to criticize him, his speed of hand and decision-making, may have rendered him a superb military surgeon. But his greatest efforts, which led to his legacy in China, were focused on educating doctors and nurses and establishing training schools. During the Battle of Chihu in April 1939, Bethune and his team performed 115 operations in 69 hours while under heavy artillery fire. This pace was clearly taking a toll on him, and he wrote home that his teeth and eyes were in bad shape and he'd lost hearing in one ear. But this supreme devotion to duty spoke to the communist ethos, quickly making him a folk hero among the Chinese. On October 28th, during an open reduction and fixation of a tibia, shin bone, he cut himself with a surgical instrument called an osteotome. A few days later, on November 1st, Bethune operated on a soldier with an infected head wound. He was not wearing gloves as none were available. This led to an infection of his cut, and eventually he developed axillary lymphadenitis, which is inflamed lymph nodes in his armpit, which then spread to the rest of his body, causing septicemia, or blood poisoning. But he continued to work until the day he died, November 12th, in a remote Chinese village called Huang Shikao. He was only 49 years old. On December 12th, Mao Zedong published his famous text, quote, in memory of Norman Bethune, end quote, even though the two had only met once. 
The focus was to urge all communists to emulate his spirit of nationalism, his sense of responsibility, and his devotion to others. It became a required reading for all Chinese citizens as one of the three prescribed articles during the Cultural Revolution. Now, his legacy in China cannot be overstated, which has led to the previously mentioned title as the world's most famous surgeon, which may actually be true. There are memorials to him all over China. The peasant's home where he died is now a national shrine. Bethune's body lies in the Cemetery of Martyrs. Across the street is the Bethune Museum and the 800-bed Norman Bethune International Peace Hospital. And there's also a Norman Bethune College of Medicine. In 1991, the Norman Bethune Medal was established, which is the highest honor in medicine in China, which is handed out only every five years. At home, however, it was decades before his reputation grew. Initially, the opinion of him was mixed, as reflected by this quote from his mentor, Dr. Archibald, quote, He was definitely abnormal, but not mental, and not a genius nor a leader. He was clever, especially in mechanical things, and could have easily been one of those inventors of whose inventions nine fail and one succeeds enormously. He was entirely amoral, and yet it is not quite fair to say all that, because I do give him credit for sincerity in his social views, end quote. Not exactly a ringing endorsement. But by the 1970s, with the defrosting of relations between China and the West, Bethune's reputation at home has been able to grow. Bethune's childhood home in Gravenhurst is now a museum, which has become an important tourist attraction, especially to Chinese tourists. There's the Bethune Roundtable, an annual conference in Canada focused on surgical issues in low- and middle-income countries. There's a plaque dedicated to him in the foyer of his and my alma mater, the University of Toronto Medical School. A statue of Bethune stands in Montreal in the Norman Bethune Square, and a number of films and documentaries have been made about his life. His legacy, both here at home and abroad, seems secure. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Sticking with the summer schedule, we'll be back in two weeks, which puts us just past Bastille Day, the celebration in France of the beginning of the French Revolution. So the topic will be a surgeon from Napoleon's Grand Army. Some of you may have heard the name Liz Frank, as a type of fracture named after him. But there, as always, is more to the story. Tune in then to learn more. But for now, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. Thanks for listening. Thank you.